You know, we live in a day and age when we probably have more control over things than ever in, in history. I shared a while back, some of you may remember this, that we got a smart thermostat in our house. And I was so excited about that because I have an app on my phone. And what it enables me to do is I can control the temperature in my house from anywhere. So like right now, I could be changing the temperature in my house. And, and more importantly than now, like I wouldn't want to do that now. But more importantly, it's like when we're going to bed and I want to change it. It's like, I mean, I don't want to walk downstairs. I mean, walking downstairs to punch the number, punch it on the thing, that's so like last decade. So, you know, I can just do it from my phone. But then we took it another step beyond that and we got an echo. And so then we... we linked our echo to the thermostat and so now I don't even have to pick up my phone not only do I not have to walk downstairs I don't even have to pick up my phone I just speak it and I just say Alexa turn the temperature down I mean it's it's so awesome I don't know where we go from here I'm guessing a brain implant that reads my thoughts I don't know at that point I think I draw the line I'm, I'm not I'm not going there but we we have all this control and even besides like smart thermostat I mean think about the fact that we can regulate the temperature in our house I mean that that's remarkable when you just stop. we're so used to it we don't think about it but that's remarkable I mean we can set the temperature at 70 degrees and it can just stay 70 degrees all year round, regardless of what's going on outside. You could have a 30, 40, 50 degree differential between what's going on outside. And you can just keep it nice and comfortable inside. I mean, there's, that's, that's pretty unique to us. I mean, there's been a lot of history, a lot of people in history, most people in history, a lot of people still in the world don't have that level of control. But with all that control, there, there's still limitations to that control. So a couple of months ago, my app stopped working for the thermostat. I, I actually had to walk up to the thermostat on the wall and, and change it. It was, it was awful. That went on for a couple of months before I could figure out, had time to sit down and figure out how to fix it. I mean, there's, there's limitations to our control. And you've, you've experienced that in areas much more important than, than thermostats in your life. I mean, you've, you've experienced that at some point in your life when you, you get a diagnosis that you were not expecting. And so you walk into the doctor's office and you walk out and suddenly your, your life feels very out of control. I'm not sure how this is all going to, to sort out, you're, you're thinking to yourself. You, you've experienced some financial disaster that you were not expecting and were not planning for. And so suddenly your life felt financially out of control. Maybe you've had a child or someone else in your family that has gone off the rails and you've done everything you could. You've, you've had all the conversations with them to try to talk them into kind of coming back, uh, kind of, you know, into sanity. And it's just not working. And you realize that, that really we, we fool ourselves when we think we have control because there's really very little that we control in life. And so for many of us, when, when we realize we're out of control and when we get overwhelmed, that's when we turn to God. That's when we, we think, okay, if there is an all-powerful being, then maybe he can help me out in my situation. Maybe, maybe that's the case for some of you here this morning. Maybe, maybe someone is here for the first time at Grace Point. Maybe you're just exploring faith, and maybe you've come to one of those crossroads in your life where you're, you're feeling totally out of control, totally overwhelmed, and you're desperate, and you're like, I'm not sure what to do next. So Maybe I'll go to church. Maybe I can learn something there. Maybe I can connect with, with this God. Maybe he'll help me out of this situation that I'm in. 
I just want to tell you, full disclosure, if you're in that situation here this morning, I just want you to know from, from the outset, God doesn't always bring things under control the way we would like for him to. Okay, so I just want you to know that uh, up front, uh, just so that you're not disappointed when it doesn't pan out the way you would like it to. In, in fact, sometimes when we, when we call on God, things don't change much at all. And, and so when that happens, we, we think maybe there's a limitation to God's power too. I mean, maybe God really isn't all powerful. And, and what about all the evil in, in the world? I mean, if there, all these bad things happening, if God was all powerful, why doesn't he stop these things from happening? We're gonna look at a passage this morning that helps us sort through those questions and helps us know what, what we can expect and how we can respond when, when we are out of control, what we can do with that. So if you would turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44, that's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one on a seat close to you. And Isaiah 44 is on page 674. We're in this series, um, getting to know God better as he wants us to know him. So we all get information about who God is from all kinds of different sources. We want to hear straight from God. What does he want us to understand about him? Last week, we started talking by talking about the, the goodness of God, that God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Today, we're going to talk about his sovereignty and wrestle with this question. If God is in complete control, then why is the world so such a mess? Why is my life such a mess? How can that be? The passage that we're going to look at here, we're going to see three things in this passage. First of all, a, a snapshot of what the real God is like. And then we're going to look at what false gods are like and what they promise and, and are not able to deliver. And then we're going to talk about how do we respond to the, the real God. So first, a picture of what the real God is like, starting in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. In these verses, we see God's sovereignty in, in three ways. Uh, the first is that God is in a category alone. He's in a category by himself. We see that in the second half of verse six. He says, besides me, there is no God. And into verse seven, who is like me? The end of verse eight, is there a God besides me? There's no rock. I, I know not any. We, we sang that in several of the songs that we sang earlier during, during our worship in song time. I, I love those songs that talk about, God, there's, there's no one like you. There's none beside you. You're in a category by yourself. So God is not like some a superhuman kind of person. He's not like just like us, but on steroids and just a little bit strong. God is in a category by himself. And we see that as we, as, as in, in a second evidence of his sovereignty is that he is outside of time. So in, in the second half of verse six there, he says, I am the first and I am the last. 
in verse seven, he says, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. He, he's saying, if there's another God who wants to vie with me, then let him proclaim something that is yet to come. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, God is the one who called the people of Israel and established them in the past. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Verse eight, he says, have I not told you from of old and declared it and you are my witnesses? So God said centuries before, I'm gonna establish a nation. And he says, here's the nation, I'm talking to you. This, this is all directed to the people of Judah and Israel. And he says, you are my witnesses that I tell from of old and then it comes to be. Let's, let's see some other God who can do that. See, God, God foresees the future, but it's actually beyond that. It's, it's beyond him foreseeing the future. He just sees it. He's not foretelling what is yet to come. For God, it's all laid out in front of him. He's outside of time. Um, the, the, the ability to be able to tell the future, we think, gives us so much power, right? That's why people read their horoscopes to try to find out what should I do or not do today. That's why people go to fortune tellers. I mean, what, what's gonna happen to me so I can plan? And God says, in a unique way, I, I am able to see the future and therefore be able to prepare for it, tell you what's going to happen. C.S. Lewis has a great description of this in his book, Mere Christianity. If you are exploring faith, if you have questions about who Jesus is, this is a great place to, to start. And he has a whole chapter in here on time. I just want to read you a couple of sentences because I think he captures this so well. He says, if we picture time as a straight line along which we have to travel, then you must picture God as the whole page on which the line is drawn. We come to the parts of the line one by one. We have to leave A behind before we get to B and cannot reach C until we leave B behind. God, from above or outside or all around, contains the whole line and sees it all. So when God tells us what's going to happen, it's because he already sees it happening. We studied the book of Revelation last fall. When we study the book of Revelation, it's not that for God it's yet future like it is for us. He just sees it happening and says, here's what's gonna happen. So you get ready, be, be ready for that. And that's unique to him. There's no one else who can claim that. A few chapters later in Isaiah 46, he says, remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other, I'm God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The sovereignty of God. So we see the sovereignty of God in that he's in a category by himself, he's outside of time and he speaks things into existence. So we see in verse eight, God says, have I not told you from of old and declared it? So when God declares what is yet to come, it's not even just that he's making an observation about things, he's, he's speaking it into existence. That's what God did from the beginning in Genesis chapter one, when there's nothing. We sang about that this morning, that beautiful song, singing all the way back to, to creation. God just speaks into the darkness and there's light. He, he speaks, and there are animals and people and all these. I mean, that's incredible power to speak things into existence. So God declares things, and they, they follow. So there's a response that God calls us to in light of all of these evidences of his sovereignty 
And the response is, verse 8, fear not. Don't be afraid. See, because God is in charge, we don't have to be afraid. Because God is in charge, we don't have to be afraid. I actually wrestled with this main point here this morning, stopping it before the word afraid, and just saying, because God is in charge, we don't have to be. We don't, we don't have to be in charge. I mean, and that's a relief in and of itself. My, my kids are in a stage where they're doing a lot of babysitting for, for families, and and occasionally they will babysit some kids, never anyone from, from this church, please be assured, but they'll, they'll babysit some kids and they'll be like, man, they were a terror. They're, they're like out of control. I don't know what to do with them. And in those moments, like they're just trying to, to, start, trying to make it through the end of the evening. And then the parents come home and whew, breathe a huge sigh of relief because now they're in charge. They got to figure this out. And then I'm out of here. And don't we all have areas of our lives like that, where, where we're in charge of something, we're responsible for something, and sometimes it goes off the rails, and it's out of control, and we're kind of in a panic, like, I'm responsible for this, and I don't know what to do right now. And we just wish a parent would come through the door and take that responsibility off of our shoulders. Well, good news, God is that parent. God is the one who is in charge so we don't have to be in charge and we don't have to be afraid because God knows what's, what's gonna happen. When, when, when God's in control, we can just breathe easier. So the, the real God, the picture we get here of the real God is that he is supremely powerful, he is sovereign. Now Isaiah is gonna contrast false gods, idols that people sometimes turn to. Let's start reading in verse nine. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together." And now Isaiah is going to describe how, how a, an idol maker makes these idols. Verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. So, so in contrast to the real God whose power is limitless, who never gets tired, we have this person making an idol who runs out of strength and is, is faint. Verse 13, the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Listen to this. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it. And worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. 
So Isaiah points out here, this couldn't be clearer, just, just the, how absurd it is to think that you're going to take a, a piece of wood and you're going to cut it into pieces and with part of the wood, you're going you're gonna to burn it, you're going to cook over it, and the other half, you're going to make a God that you're then going to fall down to and trust to deliver you and call on to deliver you. It's just, it's, the idea is, is really absurd. And Isaiah makes that really clear. So we, we live in the West, and we're way too sophisticated, most of us, to even think about like having a, a wooden or a metal idol made, made out of something. But here's the question that I have for you. What is it in, in your life that you say, what, what is here in verse 17 to? Deliver me, for you are my God. What do you turn to for deliverance when things are out of control in, in your life? could be a bank account. Maybe you're just trying to squirrel stuff away there so that you can just depend on that and you, just, you know that there's, there's going to be a cushion for you no matter what happens in your life when life goes out of control. could be a doctor when you get that diagnosis that you were not expecting and so suddenly all of your hope gets pinned on this person. I hope they do this surgery right. I hope they diagnose this and prescribe the, the right kind of medication I, because my hope is in this person. There's, can, can I tell you, there's a really fine line when you, are in, when you are out of control medically. There's a fine line between um, asking God to work through someone and trusting that God's going to be at work through the, the wisdom that he's given to, to doctors and putting all your hope in that person. I sure hope this comes through. So, you see, it's possible to idolize people and possessions, and even ideas and beliefs to the point where we turn to those things to deliver us when we are out of control. And, and the real God says, there's, there's only one who can deliver you. He's in a category by himself. He's the all-powerful one. And when we turn to blocks of wood or possessions or people to deliver us, we will be frustrated and we will be without hope because there's only one God who can deliver us. See, when we turn to our bank accounts and our doctors and, and the people in our lives, we're really not very much different from those in, in the ancient world who turned to the God of rain and tried to get the God of rain to, to send some rain so that they wouldn't starve in famine. Or the God of the sea to try to get the sea to calm down so that they could get their boat across. Or the God of war to try to help them win their war against a, a neighboring country. I mean, we're really not that different. We're, we're trying to control, we're trying to use gods to, to control our circumstances. And the real God doesn't operate that way. We, we can't control the real God. Maybe we've tried. Maybe, maybe you've tried to make a deal with the real God. He can't be controlled. Instead, he wants to control things and he wants to use us in that process which that sounds bad in and of itself. Why does God want to control every, everything? But it actually turns out to be good because of what we talked about last week, because of God's goodness. So God gives us freedom to make choices, but he's orchestrating and controlling all of those things to work together. And, and in that process, um, he wants to use us, and he is good. This is a good place to, to kind of pause and step back and think about the context of the passage that we're looking at here this morning. That the prophet Isaiah, 
God sent to the people specifically of Judah. And, he, and, and Isaiah said to them, you are going to be uprooted from your home and you're gonna be taken into exile because of your disobedience. And so they had, they, actually the people of Judah had worshiped idols. They had turned from the real God to worship idols. And so the real God said, I'm gonna to have to exert some discipline here. I'm gonna to have to teach you. And so to do that, I'm gonna uproot you from your home. I'm gonna take you to Babylon and you're gonna live there for 70 years. And while that is happening, everything will seem out of control for you. I mean, you will have to leave your home. Everything will be different for you and you'll be, rooted, you'll be dropped in a foreign land. Everything will seem out of control, but the real God is here to tell you that I am overseeing your discipline and I will oversee your return. It is all under my sovereignty. Here's the amazing thing about God. Even when we mess up, when we make missteps, the real God is able to orchestrate those things still for good. Romans 8, 28 says that. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Please understand, please be, be really clear. It does not say that all things are good. Not everything that happens in the world is a good thing, but God is able to work those things for good in his sovereignty and in his goodness. And so, when we think about the fact that God took that nation of Judah and he exiled them and he scattered them into the, the ancient world, what good came from that? Well, in that diaspora where they're scattered, those, those people who were concentrated at one time in their, their home nation now are taking their faith with them across the known world. They're establishing synagogues across the known world. And when Jesus comes and teaches and dies and is resurrected and the good news of the gospel about Jesus is spread, it is spread first to the synagogues that are planted and scattered around the known world. So they couldn't have seen that. The, the Jewish people couldn't have seen that in Isaiah 44 when God is talking to them. But God sees what is yet to come and he sees how he's going to orchestrate and use all of this and weave it together for good. What that means is that we can trust him through, through all things. We, we said last week that God's personhood is never fragmented. Right? There's, we are fragmented. We have parts of us that are good. Sometimes I do things that are good, sometimes not so good. I don't know if that's true for you. It's true at least for, for me. Sometimes I'm in control and things are going the way I would like for them to go. And many times I am out of control. God, God's personhood is never fragmented. He is all of everything he is all the time. So God is always sovereign. He is always in control and he is always good. And so as a result, we can worship him even when from our perspective, it doesn't seem like things are going very well and that this is an awful thing and how could this possibly, we can still worship him in those storms. We, Greg said earlier, our mission is to, to help make more people fully committed followers of Christ. And there's four activities that we encourage us to pursue as fully committed followers of Christ, worshiping, connecting, serving, and sharing. And so sometimes we feel like with worship, 
The only time we feel like worshiping is when everything's going right. But God says, you can worship me even in the storms because I'm still in control. Because God is in charge. We don't have to be afraid. One day, Jesus' followers were on a boat out on the sea, and there was a terrible storm, and they thought they were going to die. And Jesus, they were feeling very out of control. And Jesus walked to them on the water. And do you remember what he said? He said, take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. I know you feel out of control right now. And many of us in this room, you're, you're in a storm right now that is very much out of your control. I know it feels out of your control. It's not out of my control. It's okay. Don't, you don't have to be afraid because I'm still working it all for good. Anyone watching Jesus' life and arrest and trial and beating and crucifixion and seeing Jesus' dead body in a tomb, anyone watching that from the outside would have said, this is out of control. God has lost control here, and now the bad guys are winning. And yet, Jesus was still in control through all of it in John chapter 10, he said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So there's never a moment, never been a moment when Jesus is not in control, when God is not in control and he's orchestrating and weaving it together for good. So here's my question for you as we close here this morning. What's going on in your life right now that feels very out of your control? What, what causes fear in you because you just don't see how this could possibly work out well? Here's, here's the message for you this morning. Um, the storm uh, is in control. It's just not in your control. See, because God is in charge, we don't have to be afraid. So there's an index card on, on your seat when you came in. And here's what I'd like you to consider doing with that. Whatever this is, whatever that thing is in your life right now that feels very out of control, that, makes, that causes fear in you, I want to encourage you to, to write that on that sheet. And there's some pens attached to, to the Bibles there. I want to encourage you to write it on the sheet and use this as an opportunity to, to turn over that control to God. What, what we're going to do here is I, you write it on your sheet, and then we're going to sing a song here to, to close. And you can just fold your, your sheet in half and then just bring it up and, and attach it to this board. And what we're going to do here is, is make something of a, of a tapestry. And the story behind the, the tapestry is told by Corey Ten Boom. Some of you are familiar with her. She was uh, alive during the Second World War. Uh, she lived in Holland. And Corrie ten Boom and her family were very instrumental in saving uh, many Jewish people from, from the Nazis by hiding them in her house. Her, her story is amazing. I encourage you to read it. And it's, it's in a book called The Hiding Place. And so Corrie ten Boom and her family eventually were discovered. And they were all put into concentration camps. And every one of her family died in concentration camps except for her. 
and she lived to have an incredible ministry of talking about the sovereignty of God. I mean, you talk about the sovereignty of God in horrible, stormy circumstances. She certainly had a story to tell. And in, later in her life, after she uh, was released from the concentration camp, she, she wove a, a tapestry, and she used it to, to tell her story. And she talked about how on the underside of the tapestry, it, it looks like a mess. And there's all these knots. It, it doesn't look like a picture really at all. But when you flip it over, you see the intended picture that the artist was, was working to create. And so what Corey Ten Boom said is, you and I see the underside of the tapestry in, in the world. We, we see it all knotted up. We see it all a mess. But, but God is weaving something beautiful that we won't see this side of eternity. And so I just want to encourage you to participate in this by by writing out whatever it is that feels out of control to you, but to bring it and make it part of the tapestry that God is, is weaving because he's doing something good even if we don't see it all at the moment. All right, let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, I thank you for your sovereignty. I thank you that you see the end from the beginning. And so we don't have to be afraid because nothing is ever going to catch you by surprise. And nothing in our lives and nothing in all of history has ever caught you by surprise, but you are able to work it together for good. It doesn't mean it is good, but you're able to work it somehow for good, even as you worked that, that exile for good to spread the good news of Christ across the, the known world. Lord, for us this morning, as we sit here bound by time and all we see is moment as it unfolds by moment, we can't see the future and we can't see the tapestry that you're weaving. But Lord, what we can do in the moment is obey you when you tell us to not be afraid. And so, Lord, we want to cast our anxiety on you this morning. We want to cast a burden on you that, that we're feeling. So, Lord, each one of us in our unique situation, may we, may we cast that responsibility on you because you're the sovereign one and then maybe rest and not be afraid in your arms. Lord, I pray that you give us the ability to do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.